Hello, it's Tuesday, March the 31st, and welcome to the launch of Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast covering the social, economic, and geostrategic concerns in a world that's fast changing due to a global pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. It's my great privilege to moderate a conversation we'll be having every week with three Hoover Senior Fellows, three good fellows who offer unique insights into what lies ahead in these uncertain times. I'd like to welcome to the broadcast John Cochran, an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemarie and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow, as well as the author of the Grumpy Economist blog. Hello, John. Hi. It's good to be here. We're also joined by Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow, a distinguished historian and author, and host of Neil Ferguson's NetWorld, a three-part PBS series on the intersection of social media, technology, and the spread of cultural movements. Hello, Neil. Hi there. I'm wondering, Bill, whether I should be asking if you find me funny. Do I amuse you, given the title that we've uh, we've adopted for this show? Uh, but uh, I'll avoid any further gangster references. Just don't call me a mutt and don't kick me, okay? <laughs> Finally, last but certainly not least, I'd like to welcome Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, the Hoover Institution's Fawad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and prior to coming west to California, the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill. Good to be with you. Great to be with you, too. So, gentlemen, let's start with a broad question, which would be this. The motto of the Hoover Institution is Ideas Defining a Free Society. Let me repeat that again solely because I sometimes talk too fast, but to make sure the audience gets it. That's Ideas Defining a Free Society. Here's the question, folks. We live in a time when more than half of America is living at home, told to stay at home by the government. We live during a time when government is deciding which businesses are quote unquote necessary and which are not. We live in a time when the President of the United States has told us that we cannot be in touch with each other. We have to maintain our distance for at least another month. And we live in a time when if any of us wanted to have a family picnic outside, if we wanted to have a pep rally, a protest march, if we wanted to have a mass prayer, we could be fined, we could be sent to jail. So here's the question, gentlemen. Is this indeed a free society? And if it's not a free society as we'd like, how much liberty can government take with taking away our liberties? Neil, why don't you kick it off? Well, I think the way to think about this is that uh, throughout history, free societies have had to take exceptional measures to defend themselves against external threats, whether those threats took the form of armed states uh, intent on conquer conquering them or uh, invisible pathogens uh, like a novel coronavirus. I think if you'd asked this question of, of Pericles uh, at the time that ancient Athens was uh, swept by a mysterious plague, he'd have said much the same. Uh, th this is a free society under attack, and it, it's appropriate for that society to take measures uh, such as social distancing uh, in order to prevent a really disastrous uh, escalation of infection and, and excess mortality. And we had the same problem in 1918-19, in fact, in a much worse form in the influenza pandemic that came in those years. And uh, American states and cities took measures very similar to the ones uh, that we're taking today. So I think there's a perfectly good precedent for a free society acting in these ways. John, HR? Yeah, let, let me agree with that um, and in, in more and, and louder ways. Free societies uh, facing pandemics uh, have always done things like this or, or wars. 
this is not a new problem. Um, pandemics is something that you know goes back centuries. We're only waking up to sort of back to normal. And what a free society does is, is gives up certain freedoms for the duration. Um, for us, that includes right now economic freedom. Uh, we probably will have to also lose some social freedoms. Um, uh, one, one way to not have the economy tank is for the government to track us a little more intensively. The important thing is that this ends when the crisis ends. Uh, and that's always the difficulty of a functional free society. We have to claw it back. We have to make sure, as with the war on terrorism, that, for example, the ability to track people so you make sure that sick people don't infect others doesn't lead to, hey, we can track people for all sorts of purposes, as happened uh, under the war on terrorism. Uh, lots of people want to sneak in permanent expansions of the welfare state and all sorts of other agendas. There's also the question, are, are we a healthy or a decadent society? Uh, it, it requires trust. Uh, the, the things that um, our government can do to stop a pandemic are also politically dangerous. You can say you can't have a rally, you can't have a protest. Um, you, we're gonna follow you and, and follow where you go and who you see. These are just politically poisonous things. We have to trust for the duration that those are not being used politically as they have been abused many times before and, and, and claw them back uh, when it's over. Uh, that trust is something I worry about. Will our government be able to um, do the things necessary? And, and I think it's also worth um, making sure that it gets clawed back when it's all over. Very good. HR? I think one of the great virtues of our democracy, our, our Republican form of government, is that the people have a say in how they're governed. And then we, by, by connection, are able to apply correctives to our own government if our government doesn't perform up to our expectations. And I think that we certainly are free because we're still able to exercise that right to have a say in how we're governed. I think it's useful maybe to draw a contrast between the way China dealt with this, with this crisis at the outset, which was to deny it, to use a, a great deal of disinformation uh, in, in, in denying it uh, in, the, in the beginning. Uh, it cost the world a great deal in doing so. And then had the, you know, then had the, the gall uh, to, to, to cover up uh, its, it, its, its mishandling and, and dishonest way of handling the crisis at the outset by demanding that the people praise Xi Jinping uh, and the party. Well, you don't see a lot of praise going to the U.S. government for the, for the shortcomings associated with our initial response to COVID-19, and we ought to be grateful for that. We are free and open society. We have freedom of expression. We have freedom of the press. And these are great advantages, and we have to preserve them, as, as John has said, but we ought to maybe even take an opportunity to celebrate them. And to tie into to Neil's point, I would just say that, of course, our liberty uh, doesn't come without sacrifice. And what we're seeing now is a new group, a new class of, of American citizens who are, standing, who are standing up to make sacrifices and to take risks to preserve our republic and to preserve human life. And these are the, the, just the wonderful healthcare workers, uh, doctors, nurses, first responders who are showing tremendous courage, tremendous stoicism, and, 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 and are self-sacrificing to preserve our liberty and our way of life. So there's much to have grave concern about these days, but I think we ought to take a moment to celebrate who we are as a people and to maybe even use this crisis to restore a degree of confidence 
and our democratic principles and institutions and, and processes. Could I, let me add, add on to that just a little bit. Um, the model that we, we've sort of taken for granted in this discussion that many people say is, oh, there's a crisis, government has to take control of things. Um, as compared to China, especially one of the great things I see happening right now is the tremendous innovation coming from the private sector. Um, the, you know, the invent, Abbott Labs invented a new test that apparently is gonna be able to tell us if we have the, the virus in five minutes. This didn't happen from the, you know, the central government directing things. Look at before, when the social distancing came in, every business came up with all on their own. Here's our protocols, here's what we're doing. Uh, the vibrancy of the private sector reaction, the private sector has been way ahead of the government on, on meeting this in a lot of ways. And I think that, that freedom of expression, the freedom of, of talk back and forth, the freedom to question our leaders uh, has been an important part of America's response to this, not just we're giving up some freedoms for a little while and letting the government run things. Right. I, I find it very annoying when the press asks, what is this going to end? Uh, it's like asking Frank, to me, it's like asking Franklin Roosevelt or Winston Churchill in 1942, when's VE day, when's VJ day? Well, sometime down the road, you just have to press ahead. But I am curious, gentlemen, as to how much longer you think American society can go on this way. Because at some point, you know, we're, I'm in Northern California right now, it's been raining all of March. So if you're going to put people behind closed doors, now's a good time to do it. But what happens in two months from now when John Cochran or Neil Ferguson wants to go hiking in the mountains or go to the beach or you want to take your kids out to an amusement park or something like that, and you're still shut down by the government. What's your sense as to how long public is willing to go along with the program? Well, Bill, I don't think it's really going to be that long in the sense that unlike World War I or World War II, a, a pandemic isn't something that takes place over multiple years. Uh, it's actually a relatively finite phenomenon because uh, there will be, uh, thanks to the dynamic uh, private sectors, uh, as as much as anything, a vaccine uh, relatively soon, I think, uh, though it won't be available generally until sometime next year, and there probably will be breakthroughs in therapy. Moreover, as, as is always the case with pandemics, uh, as it spreads around the world and we understand it better, uh, a combination of, of social distancing measures uh, and also uh, the eventual herd immunity that will be reached in countries that fail to do that sets a kind of natural limit to how far this thing can go on. The experience of other countries uh, strongly suggests that if you uh, do an effective lockdown and impose effective uh, social distancing, it's really a matter of weeks rather than months uh, before you can uh, flatten the curve and, uh, and stop the exponential growth of infection. Uh, the East Asians who've handled this much better than us, and I don't mean the Chinese particularly, because I agree with the observation that they started this and their responsibility is a very great one. I'm talking about Taiwan uh, and South Korea, uh, which have in fact handled the crisis in an exemplary way. If we could learn a bit more from them when it comes to using technology uh, to go from testing to contact tracing, we can actually get on top of this in a relatively finite period of time. Now, we don't quite know for sure if a change in the weather is going to uh, slow down the contagion. It might. Uh, there's some evidence to suggest that as summer approaches, it will be uh, a less uh, virulent disease. Uh, of course, that means it may come back in winter. And most pandemics in history have been uh, characterized by multiple peaks, two or three 
so I think you can give give a people a sense that a period of, of sacrifice, uh, economic and social sacrifice, will pay off in a relatively short period of time. And I, I think something uh, resembling normality is going to start setting in after April. April's going to be a brutal month. I think it's going to be exceptionally difficult in some states, particularly New York, New Jersey, possibly some others, uh, because it's clear that they have come perilously close to having their hospitals uh, swamped by cases. That was what drove the case fatality rate up so high in, in Italy. But I don't think that's going to be true in the United States as a whole. I'd be very surprised indeed if that were the case. So I think one doesn't need to go all the way to we're in World War II, uh, because we're not. It's different from a war in a lot of respects, even if it's similar in the sense that it demands sacrifice. I don't think it's, it's a duration nearly as long as the duration of the world wars. I'm a little more pessimistic um, because what I'm seeing is that magnitude of the economic calamity is enormous here. We're, we're really shutting down close to half of the economy. Uh, the financial system is on the edge of a meltdown. Um, if this goes on for a couple of months, we're in deep trouble. And it's interesting, this is quite different from previous pandemics. Uh, 1918, for example, the economy really didn't close down that much, just lots of people died. Uh, we live uh, in a world now where it's unacceptable that lots and lots of people die. Um, but I don't think we'll put up with this economic shutdown. In part, shutting down the economy is a panic crisis move. It is not the right policy. And one thing we're doing here is sort of setting the standard for the right policy. And I hope to God that our leaders don't learn, okay, economic shutdown is the normal thing to do, as, as I think Neil was, was going towards. Um, the right policy uh, hits it fast and early. You contact tracing, testing, um, isolating people who might have it, you know, before the technology comes in and saves us. Uh, had we done that as Taiwan, uh, Korea, and Singapore did, we would not be shutting down the economy. Um, now we have to move fast to a smarter shutdown. Um, th this is a, a fat tail thing and taking people who really aren't going to spread it around and shutting them down is grossly ineffective. You got, you got to find the few activities that are really dangerous and keep an eye on those. We, we have to reopen the economy before it turns into a meltdown. I think we, I, like Neil, I am, I'm cautiously optimistic because we're enormously lucky with this virus. And in a way, I think this has been a very good thing for us. It's abundantly clear our governments and our, all of our elites were not paying attention to the pandemic problem. We kind of got the perfect virus to get everyone to pay attention. It looks like this one may in fact have spread farther among people who aren't, um, uh, who aren't showing symptoms, will get the herd immunity, it'll go away without massive deaths. Uh, biologically, there's one out there that will kill 10% of the people, not a tenth of the percent of the people. Will require a complete economic shutdown for months and months on end uh, that really will be a, a social, political, and economic catastrophe. So I, I think um, Mother Nature sent us just the perfect warning one uh, to, to cause an economic problem that I think you're right, we will scrape through in a month or so and then, and then come back. Uh, I think the recession may last a while, but, but it will be a close call. And, and if we're not so lucky, um, I think that people putting up with this kind of economic disruption won't last that long. We certainly need a smarter economic policy. 
Uh, it's perfectly obvious to normal citizens that the government's shutting down all sorts of things that don't need to be shut down, that there's smart ways to shut down. They'll put up with that for a month, but when their life savings are being emptied, their businesses and dreams are going bankrupt, all because it, you know perfectly obvious uh, policies aren't being followed, uh, there's, they're not going to put up with that for months and months on end. Uh, HR, you hear the phrase war on coronavirus, and this has been a common refrain by politicians for decades now. War on this, war on that, war on inflation, war on drugs, and on it goes. You've served in the military, you've been in a hot war. Do you like that term war? And John and Neil, I want you to weigh on in this too. Uh, should we be using the phrase war, or is there some more appropriate word to be using here? Well, I think the war, the war metaphor can be overused, but if it does galvanize action and, and impart a sense of urgency, I think it's okay to use it. And I think where it does work as well is, you know, the, the 19th century philosopher of war, Carl von Clausewitz, said that war is a continuous interaction of opposites. And I think that that is a useful analogy when applied to the, the, the human race's long battle with disease, right? It's never going to be over. And this continuous interaction will ensure that progress against disease and what we're seeing is maybe increasingly dangerous bio threats, some of which in future now, based on biogenomics and, and, and emerging technologies, could be man-made and present a very severe danger uh, as well. We have to, to do what John recommended, you know, and, and learn from this and apply it to this continuous interaction with disease. Now, when we worked on the national security strategy in 2017, we highlighted the threat uh, from pandemics. And in that strategy, we emphasized really three priority actions. The first was global surveillance, right? Find it early, as had been done with Ebola, for example, and then contain it close to the source to prevent its rapid spread before it can get out of control. Of course, that was foiled you know, by the deception and disinformation and dishonesty of the Chinese Communist Party. The second priority action was to be able to mobilize a, a medical response of, of sufficient scale to deal with an epidemic or, or, or a pandemic and to cope with those who are, who are affected by the disease, in large numbers of people affected by the disease. This is a period where we've fallen short in, in certain areas, especially in the stockpile of, of protective uh, equipment, uh, for example, number of ventilators. These are whatever everybody knows this now, right? Um, but the, the, the third area was really innovation. And this is what, what John has, has, has talked about as well, is, is the, the power of the, of the private sector. And I think we've done okay there. In fact, we've exercised this in the past in response to Ebola, but also in response to SARS. SARS, I believe, gave us a bit of a false sense of security. Because just as we were developing vaccines, for example, for SARS, they, the disease went away. Well, this, this was a disease of much greater scale and, and effect uh, on, on, on the United States, but around the world. And so what do we learn from this? I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's not too early to, to, to glean lessons now that are longer term, even as we respond uh, to, to the immediate crisis. And I, I think some of those are apparent, right? We need to stockpile more stuff. Uh, to deal with these, these threats on, on a greater scale. We have to have better global surveillance. We can't believe that because a World Health Organization exists, that it's going to be honest and effective and not infiltrated and subverted by an authoritarian regime uh, like the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so we, we, we have to rely on strong sovereign states and our, bi our bilateral relationships to develop the kind of health surveillance network uh, for, for the future. 
we have to look at the vulnerability of supply chains. And I've been uh, talking with Scott Atlas here uh, at, at Hoover uh, about the, 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 the vulnerability of our pharmaceutical supply chain uh, and, and the importance now of not only that supply chain, but others maybe having to reduce the vulnerability. I mean, we should be looking at technologies associated with agile manufacturing, for example, and, and to figure out how we can make ourselves more resilient in connection with dealing with a crisis like this, but also more resilient from an economic perspective as well. So these are just some initial ideas, but I do believe that the war metaphor can work, can be overdone, certainly, but at least what it does communicate is this continuous interaction, and it's not going to be over, right? It's the, the, the hazard to us, to our nation, to humanity from bio threats will continue beyond this crisis. Maybe I could just add one observation. The, the countries that have handled this best, uh, if you look at a kind of ranking of performance, uh, include uh, not only Taiwan uh, and South Korea, but Israel. And it illustrates uh, that countries that have to defend themselves uh, in a hostile environment, countries that aren't, in fact, uh, treated terribly well by their neighbors uh, or indeed by the international community, uh, are ready for just about any kind of attack. And, and the United States uh, has been exposed, really, as having become complacent about a threat that many people uh, talked about in, in recent years. It wasn't just uh, UHR and your national security strategy, an excellent document, but, but actually a bunch of intellectuals like Nassim Taleb kept warning about the fat tail risk of a pandemic. Pandemic. Uh, uh, there was uh, even a Bill Gates uh, contribution in this genre just uh, uh, four or five years ago, uh, and yet somehow uh, the system. In 2015, a TED talk in 2015. Right. So the question which we need to ask, and there needs to be a thorough investigation uh, of this, is, is why when those warnings had been made by numerous people, had complacency set in so far that we were caught uh, worse prepared than, in fact, most European countries. Uh, we really have done badly. And I, I think, unfortunately, there's been a tendency in the, in the media just to try to pin the blame on the president. But this is a systemic failure that goes right down to CDC and a bunch of other agencies that really seem to have been uh, asleep at the wheel. I, I do hope that when this uh, has passed its worst, we'll sit down and try to learn some lessons because whether we like it or not, the recommendations of the national security strategy uh, of 2017 clearly were not put into effect so that they could be used in 2020. I may also expand on that. Um, the war analogy is, is good in some ways and not good in other ways. Um, it's good in one way, the, the issue we started with. This is a time when uh, the government temporarily expands its powers and reach, and, and we all understand that's temporary. Um, this is also a time when, when the U.S., when fighting wars, relies on the creativity and innovation of the private sector. You know, in World War II, I'm, I'm a World War II buff like many of you, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we, we built the P-51 fighter in nine months flat. Um, this is, um, uh, re remember that our grandfathers invented the, the acronyms FUBAR and SNAFU for how much of World War II was fought. Uh, we came to Pearl Harbor completely unprepared. Our tanks exploded because they ran on gasoline. Our planes didn't fly that well because of contracting difficulties. Um, a, a government that got unprepared is a familiar thing to military planners. <clears throat> and uh, the same is, is what we're seeing here. One great thing about military, like people like HR, is they're used to thinking about what's the thing I'm not thinking about, about risk analysis. 
uh, about who's going to outflank me at two o'clock in the morning that I'm not expecting. That has not been typical of economic policy. Um, I've had many discussions. I've been worried about pandemics for a long time. I, I ask high officials when I see them, what keeps you up at two in the morning? And they, they tend to be sort of, our forecast is for growth to do X, so here's what we're going to do. You know, that's the, kind of how the Fed operates. Nobody sits around and thinks, what are the 50 things I'm not worrying about that could come up to bite me? Military thinking is very good about that. And I hope our economic policy uh, will start, to, you know, the stress test that the Fed has been doing and international institutions have been doing. They never even thought about what happens if a pandemic hits and income goes to zero for a big section of the economy for a couple of months. Uh, I hope that kind of robustness, uh, risk averse thinking, um, you know, the scenarios we're not thinking about will come to us. I hope we will build an economy that's more resilient uh, on the way that, that the reminder that this is only the first of many pandemics to come. Uh, the rest will be worse. Um, I, I want to disagree just slightly. So our world institutions did get very subverted. Much of the UN has gone off into anti-American, anti-Israeli policy, and we don't trust them. But um, monitoring whether Chinese people are eating stuff where bats and chickens are, are uh, congregating together, uh, that is the kind of thing that you need international cooperation for. So I, I would take the lesson that we cannot, we, we've sort of tolerated, okay, the UN Commission on X, Y, and Z has been completely taken over by nutcases, what the heck. Uh, I, think we, I think one answer is as, as we build alliances militarily, that we just can't put up with that, uh, that sort of thing anymore. And, and finally, there is this problem. All of our leaders try to think about where the risks are. And, and for 10 years now, they've been saying the only risk we need to worry about is climate change. Um, be it climate change as it may, I think this shows a remarkable lack of imagination uh, on what the 10 great risks to civilization are. And, and I hope we're going to stay paying attention to pandemics, not just we got done with this one. That's it. Let's get back to world as normal. But also, uh, what are the other uh, sudden unexpected risks? John, you mentioned the Fed. Mary Daly, who's the president of the San Francisco Federal Reserve, did an interview today with Yahoo Financial. I'm going to read to you the quote that she gave to the reporter that I want your feedback. And I also would like Dr. Ferguson's feedback here because this is in an alley too. Here's what she said, quote, the Federal Reserve is prepared to do whatever it takes within our powers to ensure that we are part of the solution of shoring up people over the virus, shoring up the American economy and putting us in position to grow again once the virus recedes. The key part of that, quote, do whatever it takes. So John, Neil, here's the question. Explain the difference between do whatever it takes versus do the right thing. So let's just, uh, what's going on right now? Um, the problem with shutting down an economy for a matter of months, um, and if this were, if we don't get lucky with the virus several months, is that people's incomes go to zero, but their debts don't. You gotta pay the mortgage, you gotta pay the rent, you gotta pay the interest payments on the debt, you gotta hopefully pay your employees with nothing coming in. And sooner or later, things go bankrupt at that stage. Our, our governments are also in trouble. State and local governments are getting no revenue right now. Uh, so it, it, um, there's a danger of a financial collapse. And you saw that in, in the stock market collapse, in bond markets, and the illiquidity, and so forth. The Fed is behind the scene, not just rescuing the banking system, 
but shoveling money out uh, to, to everyone. And in some sense, what you do in this crisis when people have borrowed too much money and, and you're going to have a wave of bankruptcies, which will turn a short-lived, you know, this should be a vacation. We, we all go home, we all go back again. The economy goes right back to where it was in September. Uh, the danger is that a swath of businesses will be bankrupt. People will be fired permanently from their uh, jobs. And then we have a long agonizing recovery. So right now, the mechanism we've got is the Fed stepping in to lend people money to keep going. The amounts are amazing. Uh, you know, we don't have just the trillion dollar stimulus. Uh, the Fed is prepared. Um, the stimulus gave them, a, gave them the authority basically to print up about $4 trillion worth of money, $4 trillion worth of government debt. It's all the same thing. And, and lend it, give it whatever to keep the economy float forever. Uh, and that's what they're doing. Um, I'm, I'm not ready to pass judgment on it. Um, as with the last financial crisis, it makes you worry, think, boy, oh boy, would it be nice if we hadn't gotten this way? But we certainly are in a situation where not just the banks, but the entire non-bank financial system is counting on rescue by newly printed money from the Fed. Uh, and, and I think we'll, um, I don't like to criticize the captain when we're under fire and he's telling us where to shoot, uh, but, but thinking about that, at least doing it wisely is important. Let us give thanks that the U.S. government has ample markets right now for our bonds and our money. Italy does not. Italy's not running a trillion euro stimulus and Italy's central bank isn't printing up trillions of euros to keep all its companies afloat because they don't have a central bank and they can't borrow any more money. Um, I worry that someday the US will get to that position. I suppose the danger is that, that people, particularly in the financial world, look at the stock market, look at the Fed response, look at the response of Congress and say, oh, it's a financial crisis. I remember that. Uh, that's just uh, that's the familiar 2008-9 playbook, and they start using inappropriate terminology like stimulus. Uh, none of the measures of the last two weeks can be described as stimulus. They're, they're relief, emergency relief measures uh, to compensate for the economic consequences of the pandemic, and particularly the economic consequences of, of shutdowns of the uh, of the economy. And I, I think the key here is to keep reminding people, this is a public health emergency, that that's the thing that has to be addressed. Uh, the financial, fiscal and monetary relief measures are really secondary. And we, we need to solve the public health crisis before we can uh, relieve uh, the economy effectively. Uh, the, these are really just palliatives, fiscal and monetary palliatives. Uh, they're, not, they're not a cure. And in that sense, it's quite different from the period of 2008-2009. I think a big concern that I have is that uh, this has been a very large bazooka that has been fired. In fact, really a double bazooka, fiscal and a monetary bazooka. The deficit was already a trillion dollars for this fiscal year, uh, it, it's, which was around close to 5% of GDP. We're now probably uh, on our way to 15% of GDP, given the economic contraction that's, that's happening and the enormous sums that Congress uh, just uh, agreed to spend. If this ends rather sooner than the pessimistic forecasts, and I think it will, uh, what then? I think the key issue that we need to keep drumming into people is that these are emergency measures, and when the emergency is over, 
uh, so are the emergency measures. Uh, because there is a, a non-trivial risk, uh, not, not immediately, but at some future date of inflation arising from this combination of a, a big supply shock and then an enormous expansion, uh, both fiscal and, and, and monetary. I, I think in the short run, we're going to be preoccupied with the the, the recession that, that has been induced and the deflationary consequences of that. Uh, but this is not going to last multiple years. As I said earlier, pandemics aren't like that. Uh, and if one looks at previous uh, pandemics, uh, as John earlier said, we, we never threw anything on this scale at the problem. Uh, I don't think anybody was talking about this kind of action in 1957-58, the last great influenza pandemic, which almost nobody now seems to remember. So I, I sense that the big problems are going to come once the public health crisis is under control. And we suddenly realize we fired the bazooka. Uh, you can't unfire a bazooka. HR will confirm this. HR, I want to really draw on your military expertise. Once you've fired a bazooka, you can't put the shell back in. Am I right? That's correct. And it's the same for tank rounds also. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the problem. I would say it is more of a tank round than a bazooka. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> HR, HR, let me ask you this question. What happens now with China in terms of once you do something, you can't bring it back? Once we're past this emergency, the United States of America has to take a long, hard look at its relations with China. And this is complicated. There's an economic relationship. There's a military relationship. There is a geostrategic relationship in terms of issues like road and belt. There's a human rights issue in terms of Uyghurs. A year from now, six months from now, whatever time frame you want to, how is this going to change our relationship with China? Well, it's a little bit early to say, but I would say that there are probably about four or five aspects of the competition with China that are likely to intensify, really. I mean, the, the first is, is the trade war that Neil has pointed out is really a trade and a, and a technology war associated with China's mm -hmm. effort to accelerate the development of technologies, to lead in advanced manufacturing in the emerging glo global economy, to dominate the, the, the data economy in the future. And I think that's going to intensify because China is going to see what Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party have described already as a fleeting window of opportunity to gain that dominant position in the emerging global economy. They're going to see that window closing more rapidly. With, with already a slowing economy in China, uh, this, this will exacerbate their economic problems and the party's anxiety over those problems in not being able to meet the expectations of, of the Chinese population. That's likely going to manifest itself in intensified uh, industrial espionage targeting our, our companies. It's going to be, I think, doubling down on what we regard as unfair trade and economic practices, forced transfer of intellectual property to gain access uh, to, their, to their market. But I think from, from, you know, from our perspective as well, it's the unfair advantages associated with you know, with their, their national champion companies, the state-owned enterprises, and so forth. Now, in many ways, that will be the Chinese Communist Party doubling down on some bad kind of bets already. Uh, they're likely to increase their toxic debt. Now, I'm already talking way too much economics for a general, so I'll, I was, I'll stop there. But I think it, it is going to intensify the economic dimension of the competition. The second area that, that, that it will intensify, I think, is the party's race to establish this Orwellian, this unprecedented Orwellian police state to control its own population, again, driven by fear of chaos, anxiety of, of a loss of the party's exclusive grip on power 
exacerbated by the economic problems. And what you'll see is what happens in, in Xinjiang with, you know, a million people in concentration camps. You may not see that, but what you will see is what they've learned in the, in the area of population control from this crisis extended across mm-hmm. across China. I think a, a, a third a third key area that, that is related to what will happen on the back end of, of this crisis uh, with, with the Chinese Communist Party are, are likely divisions within that party. I mean, they're are Chinese leaders now, at least what some Chinese friends are telling me, who are very dissatisfied with how the Chinese Communist Party has, has handled this crisis. There is unprecedented criticism of the party on social media of a scale that they can't damp it down as quickly as they've been able to in the past. Of course, what effect is this going to have? It's going to make the party fear chaos, even loss of control even more. And, and I think you're going to see potentially even more draconian uh, measures. And then what we ought to all be concerned about is how does this relate to their foreign policy? And we already are seeing an increase in the jingoistic uh, and, and, and militaristic rhetoric associated with Taiwan. Uh, there's been no slowing of the militarization of the South China Sea. Uh, and w- will the party conclude that it might be a good idea to manufacture an external crisis at this stage to divert the, the public's attention away from their, their dissatisfaction with the party and how they've dealt with this crisis. So I, I think I think what's important about this you know, first this crisis is to get through it for ourselves. But as we're getting through it, I think we have to pay attention to the geopolitical uh, the geopolitical consequences uh, of the of this crisis and how they're going to affect key competitions in the areas of foreign policy our economic policy, and national security as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Neil, John? John, you're an uh, economist. Do you want to do the military I'll side? I'll comment a little or? bit. Um, so uh, economics is not a war. Economics is not a competition. If China learns how to make stuff and sells it to us, we are better off. There's a big distinction between economics and, and, and military affairs there. Um, I think uh, HR is pointing out um, China is very weak right now. There's a chance, and Neil pointed this out earlier, this may be their Chernobyl. I'm already hearing of, uh, of protests breaking out. Uh, clearly, the Chinese people saw their leadership uh, in much the same light as the uh, uh, Soviet Union people saw what, what happened after Chernobyl. Um, Remember um, Japanese industrial policy that was going to bury us? Remember Soviet central planning that was going to bury us? Um, the idea that a central, that a strong central authoritarian state would come bury us economically is, is a constant nightmare of Americans who ought to have a little bit better faith in, in what happens to free people and in innovative markets. Um, they are authoritarian because they are scared to death. And the more scared to death they are, the more authoritarian they get. It, it's a fragile society. So I'm, I'm really reluctant to rush into Cold War III as our approach to China. Um, uh, and I, I'm not hearing that from HR. I'm hearing that from a lot of other people. But to view economic competition as, as a 1600s race of mercantilists over, over who can out-export the other, that's just not the way it works. That's not good uh, international policy. That's not good military policy. It's certainly not good economic policy. John, I would just say, though, John, all your points were well taken, but I don't think we can look at the economic aspects of the relationship with China independent of of the geopolitical considerations associated with an authoritarian regime 
that is not only not only behaving in a reprehensible way toward its own population, but increasingly posing a threat internationally, and mainly using mercantilist policies, using statist economic policies to advance a geostrategic uh, agenda. This is the so-called, the so-called debt trap, you know, which I think there's a danger that that could expand, right? There are a lot of, there are a lot of co- countries, as you pointed out, Italy included, right, that need infusion of capital that China may offer uh, with some strings attached, you know, uh, and as they have with, with, other, with other countries. There is the old, the old thing. I would, just, I would just only say that, you know, the, the old, this, I know this is not a transportation yep. of Lenin's, of the, you know, that the capitalist, you know, the capitalist will, you know, the, the, will, you know will, will sell the rope. What is it, the saying? You know, like, uh, we'll sell the rope that, that we'll use to hang ourselves or something. But I think what we're actually doing is we're actually giving the Chinese the money so that they can buy the rope and give, you know, give it to us to hang ourselves. I mean, what, I, what I'm concerned about is, is how much American capital is going into Chinese dual-use technologies these days. So I've just one example, and I'd love to hear what you think about this, what Neil thinks about this. You know, U.S. venture capital firms last year invested more in Chinese artificial intelligence technology-related companies than they did in U.S. companies. And of course, you've seen the debate about the, the listing of Chinese defense companies, state-run enterprises on, on, on U, U.S. exchanges. Then, you know, of course, than the U.S. financing the development of their latest military capabilities. So I, that does concern me from a military perspective, is that we are helping the, 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 uh, the People's Liberation Army uh, in their effort to gain an overmatched capability over the U.S. military, which is part of their overall, I think, effort to establish exclusionary areas of primacy uh, across the Indo-Pacific region and, and, and to, to challenge us globally. So... Um, you know, I, I, I am not, I'm not arguing for economic warfare, but I am arguing for us to not be our own worst enemy uh, and, and, and assist this authoritarian regime in gaining competitive advantages over us, geostrategically and militarily. And I think you pointed I'm out... Probably, I think yeah. I'm probably clo- closer to HR than, uh, than to John on, on this. It seems to me one of the more alarming developments of 2020 has been the speed with which the Chinese have turned uh, from being very obviously the culprits responsible for unleashing uh, this pandemic, uh, noticeably uh, restricting travel from Wuhan to the rest of China before they restricted travel from Wuhan to the rest of the world. And it's worth pointing out that those few days uh, before the Chinese actually closed down international travel uh, from Wuhan were extremely important in turning this into a global pandemic. But suddenly, within the space of a few weeks, not only has the Chinese uh, foreign ministry started a classically uh, fake news uh, claim that the virus originated uh, with the United States, in fact, with uh, an American team competing in a competition in Wuhan. But they've gone further. They've tried to cast themselves as the international heroes, uh, uh, providing uh, much-needed uh, masks, ventilators, etc., to struggling European countries and even offering uh, these things to the United States. This is a remarkable uh, pivot that they've uh, pulled off uh, and, and one that I certainly wouldn't have predicted if you'd asked me where China would be uh, in, uh, say, mid-February. And this argument is one that they're, they're actually 
uh, beginning to win. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that the Chinese have got smarter at disinformation, uh, soft power and sharp power. And, and John, let's face it, it's, it's not as if the Chinese Communist Party thinks of economics the way you do and the University of Chicago Econ Department does. They are in many ways mercantilists. They did pursue a strategy of winning uh, manufacturing market share globally by artificially depressing uh, their currency and the wages of their workers. Uh, they're, they're the ones who think in terms uh, of uh, geoeconomics, and we are, are the ones who've only recently woken up to the profound strategic challenge that that has uh, represented. I worry that if the United States makes a real mess of this, and there, there's still a distinct uh, risk that we screw up uh, by allowing this uh, to become a nationwide problem, not just a problem in New York and a few other states, but a nationwide problem because we're not sufficiently uh, effective in, in our containment of the virus. If we look as if we're in disarray and China looks as if it's bouncing back, which economically it is, just look at the latest PMIs, uh, then I think the rest of the world is going to start drawing the conclusion uh, that, that China is the rising power and we are the waning power. Uh, these regime transitions happen in history, often after great crises like this. Uh, I, I started talking about Pericles. It wasn't good for Athens in the midst of the Peloponnesian War uh, to be ravaged by a plague. And I worry a lot that this is turning out to be a major strategic reverse for the United States in the eyes of the world. I was a bit reassured, though, by Walter Russell Mead's observation that the United States always makes a mess of things at the beginning. Uh, it, it, in Churchill's famous phrase, you know, the United States always does the right thing when all the other alternatives are exhausted. We will end up doing much better than we seem to be doing. We'll, we'll handle this better than we did at the beginning, I'm, I'm confident. But there is a sense that right now the United States is losing the, the argument internationally and it's losing it to China. That's a terrible outcome considering that China's responsible for this mess in the first place. Well, we'll see if we lose that argument. And clearly what's, uh, this is a discussion that goes uh, far beyond uh, the, the uh, pandemic and probably doesn't have all that much to do with the pandemic. There will be some other piece of news. I'll, I'll just, on the, they may think of it as mercantilist, but mercantilism is wrong. So they're thinking about it wrong. And I do think actually China is in some sense good for the US. Um, remember Japanese industrial policy. Uh, Toyota was extraordinarily good for American car companies. Uh, we need competition or we la uh, go into complacency as well. So uh, actually, I just, I just, I'd like to have it confined to cars and not hypersonic missiles. However, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the military question. Hypersonic missiles that are based on our stolen, stolen technology, stolen from us, and yeah, yeah. built by companies financed by us. That, that's that's what I'm concerned about, John. All right, we should probably move on. We're, we're as you can. John, can I ask you a question though? Can I ask you a question on this? Okay, so, so, uh, so I, I think where we're headed. All right, if you want to. To, and I don't want to use the war metaphor again, but I mean, everything's been a war with China, right? There's not a war. What we said in, in the national security strategy in 2017 is we have to compete effectively. And to compete effectively is to avoid confrontation, right? Because we, our passivity, our, 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 our absence from key arenas of competition, economic and otherwise, informational, as, as Neil has, has pointed out, um, we're, we're down to our disbenefit, right? And, and also embolden China in a way that I think made confrontation more likely. Now, and also I think it's important to point out that competition doesn't foreclose on the need to cooperate. 
but but it has to be genuine cooperation, not you know the the Chinese Communist Party talking a great game about international cooperation while they're undermining organizations like the WHO, and and so I think where we're headed, where we're headed, and I'm more optimistic than Neil that we'll win this, is a decoupling war, a decoupling war that was already kind of happening, a competition decoupling decoupling competition because of the the growing view across other free market economies that China is just not a trusted partner. And even companies that were always afraid to criticize the policies of the Chinese Communist Party because they didn't want to lose market share in China were becoming much more vocal, at least privately, about their concerns about uh, about the, the policies, especially under Xi Jinping, right? The, the really moving in the opposite direction of, of the Deng Xiaoping reforms in the 90s. And, and, uh, and so uh, diminishing opportunities for, for the U.S., but also opportunities for private enterprise uh, in, in, chi- in China as well. So I, I think that we, we should try to bring as much of the world with us to the free market side uh, and, and to draw out the, the unfair Chinese practices and, and, the, and the counterproductive Chinese practices economically, but also informationally from pointing out really the, the, the way that this closed authoritarian regime is victimizing its own people. And in the case of COVID-19, did victimize the world to, 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 a, to a certain extent, right? And, and, and how uh, their, their system is not the answer, right? The, the, the answer is a self-correcting system within representative government under the rule of law, uh, based on, on individual rights, freedom of speech. I mean, all, what, what our country and what the Hoover Institution is all, is all about, right? So I would just love to hear your thoughts, Neil's thoughts, if I could pose a question here, Bill. Of, is this a, a, are, are, are we at the, at the edge of, of a decoupling war? Uh, this also, I guess, from an economic perspective, has to do with maybe a loss of confidence in supply chains already as well, based on the disruption of COVID-19. So um, I, I think as we look forward beyond this, this crisis, um, what are your thoughts about, is this a decoupling competition? And uh, I mean, sh- what might we do uh, to put ourselves in a position of relative advantage? Having, having written a, a bunch of papers about Chimerica back before the financial crisis, observing that the symbiotic relationship between China and America was a, a very strange one and, and likely to contribute ultimately to uh, instability, I, I also started using the phrase Cold War II, not three, John. We, we haven't had Cold War II, or at least we've only just begun it with China uh, last year. I'm kind of keen to weigh in here. I think what's fascinating to me is that the decoupling process really began quite a while ago. Uh, If you look at different measures of integration, uh, for example, there was a decoupling when China decided to build a great firewall around uh, its internet and prevent US tech companies really from becoming dominant there, allowing its own national champions to prosper in a way that nobody else did. That, that was uh, uh, really the beginning of, of decoupling. Uh, Chinese capital flows into the United States uh, really uh, dramatically declined long before President Trump launched the so-called and misnamed uh, trade war. I think in other ways, technologically and because of rising Chinese labor costs, decoupling was gradually happening too. Uh, but the pandemic is, I think, going to accelerate the process. I remember being assured uh, late last year by 
uh, former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson that decoupling was a crazy idea and it couldn't possibly happen. And I said to him, look, in 1914, you might have said that about Britain and Germany, which were just as intertwined as the US and China today. They decoupled pretty quickly uh, when war broke out. And I think the pandemic is going to lead to a really much accelerated decoupling. For example, is it really plausible that the US Congress is not going to apply pressure uh, to reduce our dependence on imported pharmaceuticals from China? I mean, that seems an obvious consequence of this. It simply can't be sane for the United States to be beholden to its principal strategic rival for essential supplies uh, of, of medicines. So I think uh, the decoupling is underway. It's been underway for some time. The historical significance of the pandemic is that it's accelerating it and really accelerating it quite a bit. Very good. John Cochran? Uh, well, I'll put in a last word for economics is not a competition. And this will be uh, the last word for the podcast today, too. Okay. Uh, economics is, well, I hope we get a little bit of a wrap-up. Economics is not a competition. Um, we are immensely better off from having traded with China, to say nothing of a billion people in China having been raised from despicable poverty to middle, you know, middle income uh, stuck, which is where they are now, and they have to decide. Uh, I, they, they have a big problem of, of how are they going to keep growing uh, right now. Uh, so I, I still think completely just because, yes, we need robust supply chains, which is a great thing, and which means we need to be coupled with the whole world. Uh, but, you know, if you want China to talk to us and send us stuff when we need it and let us know what's going on with their viruses, it's much better if we're talking to them than if we've decided we're Cold War II and, and, and decoupled from them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, John, I just say I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I don't, do not think competition means, you know, means Cold War, right? But, but, uh, but, but certainly we have, to, we have to compete effectively. And, and maybe some of these adjustments that are, that, that are happening are happening mainly because of free market incentives, right? And, and, and conclusions on the part of businesses. That, that, that because of the policies of the Chinese Communist Party, because of the danger of doing business there and the rules to which you have to adhere, <laughs> but for example, like not sending out a tweet in support of a protest in Hong Kong, that it's, not, it's just too much of a risk. When the next pandemic comes from India, we will want to be able to source stuff from China. Uh, you know, it, 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 in fact, John, I'm sorry. Historically, pandemics have much more frequently come from East Asia than from South Asia. In fact, it's one of the patterns of history that the great pandemics tend to have their origins in 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 China, and that's not entirely a, an accident because of the combination of very large, dense, d densely populated areas and curious cultural habits like eating bats and selling them live at markets. You couldn't really actually come up with a better way. Uh, to produce new viruses than doing that. And it's astonishing that an entity like the World Health, World Health Organization doesn't have it as a top priority to stop that kind of thing going on. Look, Cold War II is real. It's happening now. Just because the United States doesn't realize it uh, doesn't make it any less so. We, we were a bit slow to realize that actually the Soviet Union posed a major threat to the United States at the end of World War II. Uh, and it took some time before it was obvious just how aggressive Stalin intended to be in the post-war 
period. I think we're in a similar state of mind right now. Chimerica hasn't quite died in the minds of a generation of, of politicians of both parties who, who were great believers in the integration of China into the international system and thought that if we only engaged in trade with them, then they'd magically become a free society under our benign influence. Well, that's turned out to be the great strategic miscalculation of our, our generation. Make no mistake, in the minds of the Chinese leadership, they are pursuing a strategy uh, of, of not just parity, but primacy. Uh, they are using, uh, we haven't even talked about it, One Belt, One Road, increasingly, not just as an economic program, but as a geopolitical program. And for us to sit uh, uh, insisting that, no, Cold War II is a terrible idea, we mustn't do that, is just to miss the reality that it's already been declared, it's being pursued by China now. And the fact that they even used a pandemic, a global health crisis, for which they were directly responsible as the basis for an attack on the United States, an official attack by the spokesman of the Chinese foreign ministry. That illustrates that Cold War II has begun. And it would simply be absurd for us to continue uh, to tell ourselves, it's all going to be fine. Chimerica will come back if we're just nice to Xi Jinping. Well, the, okay. the other program, the other program, we got to cut it off here. The other, the other program that's aptly made, named is, is, is uh, military civilian fusion, right? Which, which gets to the point that the Chinese don't see the distinction we would like them to see uh, between economic, mil uh, economic activity and, and military uh, activity. Okay, right. Uh, gentlemen, I'm sorry, but we're running out of time here. So you can't see behind my computer. If I turn my camera around, you would see all sorts of posters notes with things I wanted to bring up today and we did not get to, but there's good news. That means we do this again next week. We'll have a lot to talk about. So John, Neil, HR, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate your time. Hey, it was fun, everyone. Thanks. Fun. I, I miss talking with you guys and fighting it out in the lunchroom. <laughs> <laughs> I miss it too. I miss it too. I think the original Goodfellas was funnier. Let's face it. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why I'm in the position of Joe Pesci. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't. <laughs> we'll come armed next week. Okay. Well, thanks for watching the first episode of Goodfellas. We'll be back again this time next week on the behalf of my colleagues, John Cochran, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, by all means, stay safe, stay healthy, stay strong. And, We'll try to live up our end of the bargain by trying to help you keep informed. We'll see you next week.